On today's episode, we have a couple of instant classics, starting with Toy Story from 1995 and Back to the Future from 1985. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said we've got a couple of great movies that i absolutely love and i just i can't wait to fucking talk about them i mean both of these especially toy story that really hammers at home for my childhood like I really loved that movie and I actually didn't see Back to the Future until I was quite a bit older but I still love it just like a lot of people do that did see it in their childhood so I guess we'll just dive right into these movies starting with Toy Story released on November 22nd 1995 directed by John Lasseter and he also made A Bug's Life which is a solid one it was the second Pixar movie And then he made the Cars movies, which honestly I cannot recommend because fuck the Cars movies. I think they're fucking terrible. For the writers, we have Joss Whedon, Andrew Stanton, Joel Cohen, and Alex Sokolow. Joss Whedon's show Firefly is fucking phenomenal. Like, it's only a season long, but it is a cult favorite like it's well loved by a lot of people and it's a really good show i can't recommend that one enough it's solid i need to go back and revisit actually andrew stanton's other pixar movies like monsters inc and finding nemo as well as like wall-e they're all really good i would i would check those ones out joel cohen and uh alex sokolow's money talks is one that i actually covered on my blog i did a review of it i really enjoy money talks even though i know it's not like it's got its flaws it's kind of problematic but it's a decent movie so For the producers, we have Bonnie Arnold and Ralph Guggenheim. And for Bonnie Arnold, I would say check out the first How to Train Your Dragon movie. It's an underrated favorite of mine. I really enjoy it. I like the story, and it's a very cool concept that they went with. For one to avoid, I guess Ralph Guggenheim is actually currently an executive at Electronic Arts, which is the gaming company and they've notoriously kind of made some shitty video games and they've also popularized the concept of microtransactions and having to pay your way to play in games and it's like fuck you guys for the score we have composer randy newman honestly his music is not fucking great in this movie and as a rule i find him legitimately awful based on what non-film score songs i've heard by him like i just don't like his voice and His lyrics leave a lot to be desired, to be honest. So for the cast, we have Tom Hanks, who plays Woody. And obviously, you should check out Road to Perdition. That's an underrated favorite of mine. I really like that movie, and I always want to rewatch it time and time again. It never gets old. I also kind of want to see The Money Pit with him. I've never seen... Tom Hanks' movie, The Money Pit, and I 
I don't know, maybe it could be good, but a couple to avoid with Tom Hanks are Larry Crown, which I couldn't even get through like 10 minutes of. It was so stupid. And then The Polar Express, like I loved that book when I was growing up, but like honestly what they did with the movie just was unsettling and weird. Like I didn't like anything about it. Then we have Tim Allen, who plays Buzz Lightyear, and he was in The Santa Claus, which is a decent Christmas movie. He was in Galaxy Quest, which was kind of poking fun at, like, Star Trek and Star Wars and things like that. It was actually a legitimately funny movie, and I need to rewatch it. I haven't seen it in a while. For the ones to avoid, I would just say the other Santa Claus movies that he's made are just not good, and basically any of his other live-action movies have been fucking terrible. Like, I don't like any of them. Then we have Don Rickles, who plays Mr. Potato Head. Jim Varney plays Slinky Dog. Wallace Shawn plays Rex, and he was in The Princess Bride, which is a favorite of mine. I really love that one. And he was in My Dinner with Andre, which is a very interesting concept for a movie. It's basically just these two guys go to dinner and have this really deep conversation with each other. It's not like any movie you've probably ever seen. The one to avoid with Wallace Shawn is Young Sheldon, because I legitimately believe that that show is like one of the worst shows to ever get popular and spawn several seasons. Like, it's just not good. I don't find it funny at all. John Ratzenberger plays Ham, and he was obviously on Cheers. He was Cliff, I believe. And obviously, Cheers is a good show. You should check it out sometime. He's also been in like all of the other Pixar movies. So as long as it's not Cars, I would say check it out by Pixar because Pixar is fucking solid. For the casting notes, we have Robin Williams, Clint Eastwood, and Paul Newman were considered for the role of Woody. Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, Jim Carrey, Billy Crystal, Jason Alexander, Dan Aykroyd, Matthew Broderick, Kevin Costner, Michael J. Fox, Richard Gere, David Hasselhoff, Michael Keaton, Wayne Knight, Bill Paxton, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Adam Sandler, and John Travolta were considered to play Buzz Lightyear. Rick Moranis was considered for the role of Rex, and John Cleese was considered for Slinky Dog. For the plot synopsis, we have, In a world where toys come to life when humans are away, the cowboy doll leader of One Boy's Toys has his world turned upside down and is cast out when a spaceman toy arrives as a birthday present. Alright, let's dive into the fucking plot, guys. I will say the initial opening scene where Andy's playing with the toys seems pretty genuine. It's really how kids play with toys. I really like it. And this is despite the fact that no child that I know of was playing with toys like these in the early to mid-90s ever. Like, I just don't know anybody. Like, he would he would have been like, I don't know, maybe like eight years old. Is that how old he's supposed to be? And it's like, there's no fucking way he's playing with these kinds of toys. It's amazing how choppy this fucking computer animation is in this movie now, given how far things have come, you know? Like, we've gotten so much better with computer animation and CGI that it's like, it's hard to believe that it was like once this primitive looking. Like, it was amazing for 1995, but it's improved so fucking much. It's kind of like 
playing an old PlayStation game where their mouth didn't move and they didn't have fingers and it's just rough because you know how much better it's gotten and you don't really want to go back to that much, but it's still fun to go back and play those games. It's still fun to go back and revisit these movies. Mr. Potato Head actually gets called One-Eyed Bart and it seems like my people will never stop getting portrayed as evil in Hollywood films. I just don't understand it. Andy's little sister is a baby whose name is Molly, and Molly is far too little for toys with small parts, which actually gets pointed out by Mr. Potato Head later, but I kind of jumped the gun when I was taking notes. Randy Newman's You've Got a Friend in Me comes on, and I've got to say, nothing against Randy Newman, but fuck Randy Newman and his dumb music, I don't like it. Like, the songwriting is really not that terrible, but it's like, let someone with real vocal talent sing the actual song for you, you know what I mean? A lot of this movie really resonates with me, like, the way he's playing with Woody reminds me of my childhood, but it would have been with Batman action figures. But man, all of the fucking hair in this movie looks so shitty in retrospect, honestly. Woody wakes up when Andy leaves the room, and all the toys come to life, and it's fucking wild. You know, you get this big reveal, like, oh, these toys are alive. The Slinky Dog and Woody talk for a minute, and Woody shares that he has some bad news and tells Slinky to be cool. And Slinky walks away, and I can't really tell if it's like he's supposed to be crying out or if he's laughing or what he's doing and I guess that's what you get for casting fucking Ernest as any of your voice roles. Woody has such a rapport with the other toys but it kind of seems like it's just a facade because he's in power and they have to make nice with him. I've got to say that Bo Peep is one of the more promiscuous female characters in modern cinema. The only ones who are ahead of her are Sharon Stone's character from Basic Instinct and that girl from Love Actually whose only character trait is that she wants to bang Alan Rickman. Woody's reaction to Bo where she's flirting and he pretty much just giggles uncontrollably when she suggests that they're going to fuck later. It's genuinely fucking hysterical. Woody has a legitimate all-toy meeting, and you can tell that he has to make a lot of tough decisions around there and do a lot of things that people wouldn't want to do. He tells everyone that Andy's birthday party has been moved to today, and they all freak the fuck out. And I should probably mention that the party came sooner than expected because Andy's family is actually moving away in a few days. So Woody is Andy's favorite toy, so he doesn't worry much about new toys and everyone else is fucking nervous for fear of getting demoted or donated and garage sailed or whatever. There's so much adult fucking humor in this, like... Potato Head removes his lips and kisses his own ass to mock Slinky, and it's like, I don't remember how much of this stuff I understood when I was younger, but it's just fucking wild to watch now. So help me understand, Woody's using this microphone toy, but who is that toy for? The microphone is small enough to look normal with Woody using it, but it'd be like really tiny for Andy. So like, I don't understand what the purpose of that toy is. The party is starting and all the toys are losing their minds about what Andy might get. And they really need to fucking rein it in with their concerns. Because some of these toys should have lost all hope already, honestly. Like, a lot of them should have been donated, even without the advent of a new toy. For instance, Mr. Spell, 
should be used for fucking spare parts at best, and he wouldn't even demand a dollar at Goodwill. Like, get real. I gotta say, I love the whole marching of the troops down to scope out the party and send word back to the toys via baby monitor. I especially love the whole thing where one of the soldiers gets crushed and Sarge says, A good soldier never leaves a man behind. Arlie Ermey was such a fucking classic choice to play Sarge. The surprise extra toy from the mom is an exciting development, too. The toys think that the coast is clear and are relieved until that fucking happens. I just googled the most popular toy in 1995, and it was actually Beanie Babies. And I believe I had Snort, which was a Red Bull. Ironically, decades later, I subsequently developed a pretty significant energy drink addiction. Also, I don't remember that many kids actually having Beanie Baby collections. I feel like it was mostly just old people that had a lot of them, but I could be wrong. I might just not have known the right people. Some of the most human emotions come through in this moment when they basically knock the baby monitor off of the nightstand and the batteries come out and they're like trying to get the batteries back in and Woody is fucking screaming at them. He's like, plus is positive, minus is negative, blah, blah, blah. And he's just fucking furious about it. Honestly, with all of these fucking actors that were suggested to potentially play Buzz, I couldn't fucking imagine anyone other than Tim Allen pulling this off so fucking well. I'm just going to ask this question right now, and I'm sure it's been answered before, but if Buzz doesn't believe he's really a toy, why does he freeze up in the presence of humans? My theory is he's doing like a monkey see, monkey do thing, and probably assumes it's some kind of primal defense mechanism. And... I must mention that Tom Hanks is also outstanding in this movie, but that goes without saying because he's fucking Tom Hanks. They're checking out all of Buzz's cool gadgets, and he does this flying demonstration. Like, he has so many cool features, like wings that flip out, and a laser, and a wrist communicator. But when they actually came out with these toys in real life, they didn't have shit on them. Like, none of that shit was going on. I see all of this flying nonsense that Buzz ends up doing, and it's I honestly just have the same perspective as as Woody on it. Like it's like it really clearly is just falling with style. It's not actual flying. Bo says, I found my moving buddy, and you just know that she's down to get some of that fucking Space Ranger D, you know what I'm saying? Cue this big montage of Andy converting his whole life to a love of Buzz to another shitty backing song by Randy Newman. I wonder if my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys reacted the same way when I went from Batman to them and then back to Batman again. They must have been devastated. I mean, Michelangelo probably took it especially hard. Woody's every reaction is pretty much wholly relatable in this movie for the most part, with a few exceptions. His expressions, his comments, his actions, It's like, man, I feel like I am that fucking cowboy sometimes. I also love Buzz's words for, like, normal, everyday things. I mean, he calls scotch tape a unidirectional bonding strip. Woody points out the objective truth that it's ridiculous that Buzz thinks he's actually the Buzz Lightyear, but none of the other toys really see a problem with this, and I assume Woody is the kind of person who is more of a bully type, now that I think about it. If you're the only one who has a problem in most scenarios, you probably are the problem. Then we obviously get exposed to the horrifying world of the kid next door, Sid, that actually looks pretty fun in some instances. 
Like, he's blowing up a combat Carl that is basically just a knockoff G.I. Joe because Pixar couldn't get the rights to G.I. Joe. And I mean, shit, if my mom would have let me play with fireworks when I was little, I would have been all about that fucking life. I I probably wouldn't have done it with toys, but maybe other inanimate objects or something. There's this moment where they find out that Andy is going to Pizza Planet, and Woody realizes Andy will definitely be taking Buzz with him beyond the shadow of a doubt, and Woody becomes what is unquestionably a cold-blooded murderer and tries to take Buzz out by knocking him out of a window, which he is partially successful in doing. The story supposedly is that Woody was actually intending to knock Buzz behind the desk and out of commission, but all the inclinations still feel the same. Buzz is alive in the bushes at the ground level below the second-story window where he fell out of, after he is knocked out by Woody, and all the toys turn on Woody, which is exactly what they fucking should do, and they know how Woody has been acting now that Buzz is the favorite toy for Andy. So they all converge on Woody, but Andy comes back and they flee. Question, how many close calls do you think there are in an average week with toys that have come to life and don't go still in time and Andy almost sees them? You know what I mean? Like, how frequently do you think that's happening? I'm guessing like a couple of dozen times a week, probably. What you must remember through all of this is that Woody is an attempted murderer and whether he went to great lengths to save Buzz later on or not, he still tried to kill him and is likely to try again. Andy ultimately has to take Woody with him to Pizza Planet because he can't find Buzz, but Buzz follows them by jumping on the van as they pull away. And I really admire the fact that Buzz's background is largely based in space, so naturally he knows how to adapt to unfamiliar planets. And then when Buzz finds Woody, the intent for Buzz is to just kill Woody, and Woody's intent is to use Buzz to testify that Woody didn't actually try to kill him. But if you're Buzz in this scenario, you should probably just play nice with Woody all through the Pizza Planet experience and wait until you get back and just overwhelm Woody with numbers, all the toys against Woody, you know what I mean? This moment where Buzz and Woody fight at the fucking gas station and subsequently get stranded there, Woody could honestly not be more relatable in this moment. Like, everything he says is just oozing pure annoyance with Buzz, and it's really well conveyed through the voice acting. And Buzz's delusions could not be more present in this moment as he goes on about his mission to stop Emperor Zurg. Nothing in this movie has been as dated thus far, though, as when the pizza delivery guy has to stop and ask for actual directions from somebody, and it's like, wow, yeah, that's not happening anymore. I feel like this has already happened somewhere, but I really want to go to a fucking real pizza planet and just bask in the glory of it all, you know what I mean? Like, it would just be fucking cool. Like, this place would legitimately be awesome for a kid to go to. It's got so many cool features and stuff. I mean, they got the guards at the door. They got all these fucking rocket ships and stuff. It's just really fucking cool. So, Buzz gets into this claw machine game while they're at Pizza Planet, which is shaped like a spaceship that Woody follows him into. You see, he's like seeing these spaceships everywhere at Pizza Planet since that's the theme of the place, but... He thinks they're all going to take him to space to complete his fucking mission or whatever. And there are all these dumbass three-eyed aliens in the claw machine that are supposed to be the only toy that you can get from the thing. But then Sid from next door is at Pizza Planet and gets an alien from the claw machine at first, but 
Then he spots Buzz in there with the other toys and magically catches him and Woody with the claw. People who are really fucking good at those claw machines, I gotta say, they're cut from a different cloth. I've never been that guy. I've never been able to get shit out of those claw machines. What do you think Sid ended up doing with his life? Like, realistically, I mean... Especially given the events of, like, the toys coming to life. Do you think he just went into an insane asylum or something? Like, what what happened there, I wonder? It would appear that Sid has a less-than-stellar home life when we get to his house, and he takes the alien toy from his bag and rests it on his dog Scud's nose, and basically he gives Scud the word, and Scud rips the fucking alien apart, and they're obviously, like, Buzz and Woody are in the bag too, and they're fucking horrified. Fun fact, I think Scud is actually supposed to be a bull terrier, but I'm no dog breed expert. I just enjoy the little things every once in a while. I used to actually be afraid of dogs because when I was very little, I actually, I think I got between a mom and her puppy and I guess the mom bit me or something. So I never had dogs while I was growing up and my mom never really liked them. So we didn't have dogs and and I kind of got better around them as I got older. And then when I started delivering pizzas for a while, I got over that fear really quick because people do not do a good job of keeping their dogs away from delivery people at all. Like, not even a fucking little bit. Then I actually ended up dating a girl who was head over heels for all things dogs, so I started to adore them. But I still don't have one of my own because I'm not home enough, even though I really enjoy dogs, but I'd rather it be other people's dogs that I enjoy, you know? Anyway, Sid's toys are legitimately terrifying, and they don't talk for some reason, which really adds to the scariness. He's got, like, this one that's, like, a baby doll's head on, like, this creepy robotic spider that it's just, it's fucking terrifying. So, Sid himself really does seem to have a stupendous imagination, though. Like, he plays surgeon with the toys, and he takes his sister Hannah's doll and replaces its head with a head from a pterodactyl toy. And the next morning, Sid is torturing Woody by using a magnifying glass to burn a small hole in the middle of his forehead, and he's pretending that he's interrogating Woody. So it's like, holy shit, this kid has a vibrant imagination. It's just, it's all fucking terrible shit. Woody seizes the opportunity when Sid leaves the room to escape Sid's room with Buzz, but Scud comes after them and they narrowly get away but Buzz sees a commercial on TV that's for Buzz Lightyear toys like him, and he enters into a complete existential crisis because up to this point, he has legitimately thought that he was Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger, and that was it. Like, he wasn't actually a toy. But before he goes all the way in on it, like, he attempts to fly like he did in Andy's room, but naturally, he doesn't have anything to grab onto, and he falls straight down, and his arm falls off when he hits the floor, and it's like, holy shit. Another god-awful Randy Newman song plays, and I've got to say that's easily the worst part about this movie, is these fucking Randy Newman songs are just terrible. So as Buzz lays on the floor, having given up, Sid's sister Hannah comes by and finds him there and takes him. Hannah also seems like she's a bit of a lunatic as well. I guess it kind of runs in the family. Buzz says this one line where he's like, One minute you're defending the whole galaxy, and then suddenly you find yourself sucking down Darjeeling with Marie Antoinette and her little sister. And it's as he's having a tea party with these two headless dolls in Hannah's room, and Buzz says all of this while acting completely drunk, and it's just fucking great. But fun fact... 
Marie Antoinette was actually beheaded at 12.15 p.m. on October 16, 1793 for high treason, among other things. Woody gets an idea to call over to Andy's room from Sid's with the intention of using a string of Christmas lights to get over there, and although Andy's toys initially go for it, it dawns on them that as far as they know, Woody is a stone-cold killer and doesn't deserve their help. Woody assures them that Buzz is safe with him, and Buzz is still catatonic and won't help Woody, but throws him his arm, and Woody uses it to pretend Buzz is right there. But of course, they figure out that he's faking, because he accidentally reveals the arm is not actually attached to anything, and they all assume the absolute worst and throw the strand of lights back. Meanwhile, Sid's toys are actually reattaching Buzz's arm, and they reveal that they've fixed other toys that Sid was seen to have operated on. And then Sid comes back to his room and he has a package that contains a rocket-shaped firework and he searches for a toy to blow up like the one he did earlier in the film. And Woody is obviously legitimately terrified since he knows Sid isn't fucking around, so he manages to hide, but Sid then locates Buzz on the floor and he tapes him to the rocket and it's like, oh shit. It begins raining, so Sid has to delay setting off the rocket till the following day, and Andy's going to bed, we see, and him and his mom haven't been able to find Woody or Buzz anywhere. All of Andy's toys are pretty much packed up by now in boxes, and at this point, you wouldn't really think any of them were on Woody's side, but of course, Bo is still thirsty as fuck, and so she's still holding out hope for him. Woody pleads with Buzz back at Sid's that they need to work together to try and get back to Andy's, and we get a lot of humanity in the scene as Woody convinces Buzz how great he is and how even though he's a toy and not a real spaceman, he's still important. Like, Woody tells Buzz that he is a very cool toy and he has a ton of features, and finally Buzz realizes that he must accept that even though Woody tried to take him out, if Buzz truly believes in rehabilitation, he must take this leap. As they go to leave, Sid's alarm goes off, and Sid wakes up and goes downstairs to take Buzz to blow him up, and what in the fuck's name is this floor in Sid's room? Like, what's it supposed to be? Because it looks almost like linoleum, but I guess it's supposed to be like green Berber carpet or something. Woody gets Sid's scary toys that can't talk to work with him to save Buzz, and their plan is pretty fucking ingenious. There's a lot of misdirection and cool high-speed chase stuff, and their shenanigans unfortunately leave Scud outside, and that's important for later. Woody comes out as Sid is in the backyard, ready to launch Buzz, and we get one of the more well-orchestrated scare shows in movie history. Sid puts Woody on the grill with a match in his holster and suggests that he'll get him later and goes to light Buzz's rocket. But before he can, Woody's voice recording starts going off by itself. Then suddenly, all of the toys in the yard start coming to life as Woody starts actually talking to Sid. And then, I mean, you've got toys coming out of the sandbox, like, that were buried. They're just coming out of the woodwork, and it's just, like, fucking horrifying. And then Woody stops making it seem like just the voice is coming from the voice box inside him, and he actually comes to life and says stuff to Sid. And obviously, Sid is fucking mortified, and he runs off with this sense of pure horror. But 
Woody and Buzz have to run to catch Andy in the moving truck, and this is a pretty fucking exciting race to the finish as Woody and Buzz run to catch the truck, but unfortunately, Scud catches them, and Buzz has to create a diversion to keep Scud from killing Woody. Woody breaks into the moving truck and gets the RC car out to have it go get Buzz, but as he sends it, Andy's other toys assume that Woody is back to his old murdering ways, of course, and they all throw Woody out of the truck, but luckily he catches a ride with Buzz, and they're catching up to the truck, and the toys finally see that Woody has Buzz with him, and they're overjoyed. Unfortunately, like, they try and use Slinky, because he's, like, it's a dog, like, the front end of a dog and the rear end of a dog with a slinky in the middle. And they're using him as like a fucking rope to fucking pull Buzz and Woody up. And basically just as he's trying to pull them in, the RC runs out of battery and fucking comes to a screeching halt. Woody remembers that Buzz has a rocket tape to his back and Woody also has a match in his holster from Sid, but it's the most fucking devastating thing. Like Woody goes to light it and he's all excited and a car drives by and the flame goes out. And then it's like Woody is just devastated and And then as Woody is crying out, wondering why God has forsaken him, he realizes the sun is refracting through Buzz's helmet and creating a focused beam of heat, much like Sid's magnifying glass did. Woody uses the helmet to light the rocket, and oh boy, here we go, Woody kind of forgot that rockets eventually explode. But they use the rocket to drop the RC at the truck, and then they go way up in the air and almost blow up, but Buzz actuates his wings and breaks the tape, and they fall off the rocket, and they of course land in the van with Andy. Andy excitedly tells his mom that he found Woody and Buzz, and she asks him where they were, and he says, right here in the car. And she says the most mom shit ever, which is, see, just like I told you, right where you left them. Which is almost as bad as my mom saying that stuff is always in the last place you look. It's like, well, fucking yeah, we generally don't keep looking for stuff after we find it, so obviously it's going to be in the last place you looked. So praise for this movie, the real personalities and stories being conveyed through the toys, it's amazing. Despite us having come a long way from this, it's the first feature-length computer animated film, and it's pretty awesome. The sense of humor and the overall relatability to the characters is also great. My biggest criticism is, of course, Randy Newman's fucking music, because it is awful. So, for a little bit of trivia, Toy Story was both Tom Hanks's and Tim Allen's first animated film, and they recorded their lines together to make their characters' chemistry and interactions realistic. Sid Phillips is said to be inspired by a former Pixar employee of the same last name who was known to disassemble toys and use the parts to build bizarre creations. This was the first animated film in Oscar history to be nominated for a Best Screenplay Academy Award Adapted or Original. Early scripts for the film featured a Barbie doll in a prominent role as Woody's love interest. The original ending sequence in which Buzz and Woody chase the moving truck was scripted to have Barbie drive her Corvette off the truck and rescue Woody and Buzz from Sid's dog, a la Sarah Connor from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Mattel, the company that owns the Barbie character, declined on the basis that they thought the film would be a failure and that they didn't want Barbie to have a defined personality, preferring to let children imagine Barbie's personality traits on their own. Thus, Barbie was dropped from the script and her character was reworked into that of Bo Peep. 
When the film proved a huge success, Mattel did allow Barbie to appear in Toy Story 2. The animation team perfected the movement of the toy soldiers by nailing a pair of sneakers to a sheet of wood and trying to walk around with them on. The carpet in Sid's house has the same hexagonal pattern as the carpet in the Overlook Hotel from The Shining from 1980. Some 3D effects were too complex or even impossible to calculate at the time of this film. Subtle tricks were used to avoid them. Examples would be explosions, thus the viewer doesn't see Combat Carl's demise, hair dynamics, so Andy, Sid, and Molly all have short hair while Andy's mother's hair is always tied back in a ponytail, which is simple to model, and flying water droplets, thus the viewer doesn't see any liquid when Woody dunks his burning head into a bowl of cereal. The toy box on top of the milk crate that Woody is trapped in is a Binford, the same tool brand that Tim Allen used on his television show, Home Improvement from 1991. In full production, Toy Story employed just 110 people. In comparison, The Lion King from 1994 was made with 800 employees. The film required 800,000 machine hours and 114,240 animation frames in total. The only toy that wasn't in production when the film was released was Slinky Dog. Buzz Lightyear was originally going to be named Lunar Larry. So a little bit of info and ratings. Runtime, we have 81 minutes. Budget, 30 million. Opening weekend, 29.1 million. Worldwide gross, 394.4 million. IMDb rating, 8.3. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 100%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 92%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I absolutely fucking adore this movie, and it'll always have a special place in my heart. I just love it. Alright, so moving on to Back to the Future, released on July 3rd, 1985, directed by Robert Zemeckis, and he made Forrest Gump, which was previously covered on this podcast, and it's an all-time favorite of mine. He also made Romancing the Stone, which is a great adventure movie if you ever want to check it out. And the one to avoid is still... The Polar Express. I don't like it. I am not a fan of that movie. I can't get into it. So for the writers, we have Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Producers, Bob Gale and Neil Canton. For the score, we have composer Alan Silvestri, and he also did Forrest Gump, and he did Predator, which was previously covered on this podcast. He did The Abyss, which is, I believe, a James Cameron movie, and I still need to check that out. I've never seen it. Two to avoid by Alan Silvestri would be Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, which is a movie with Sylvester Stallone and Estelle Getty, and I just... I feel like the title says it all. And he also made that Super Mario Brothers movie from the early 90s that no one liked. For the cast, we have Michael J. Fox, and his real name is actually Michael Andrew Fox. And I know it's for SAG naming rules reasons, but it still kind of pisses me off that his middle initial is J and his real middle name is Andrew. Anyway, he plays the character of Marty McFly, who is our teenage protagonist who gets in trouble with bullies and school officials on the regular. A couple of his movies to check out. I mean, obviously the other Back to the Future movies are solid. I mean, I don't think they're quite as good as the first one, but 
I love him still. He was also in Teen Wolf, which I actually didn't see until fairly recently, and I actually really enjoyed that. It had a lot of great humor, and it was a pretty funny concept. He was also in Doc Hollywood, which I still have never seen, and it's like, I don't know if it's worth watching at all. Next up, we have Christopher Lloyd, who plays Emmett Doc Brown, and Doc is the scientist and inventor who turns a DMC DeLorean into a time machine that takes Marty back to 1955. A couple of his movies, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is solid, and Clue is pretty decent. It's not one that I like watch regularly, but I enjoyed it. And he was also in this one I had to watch called The Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure. And it was like this children's movie. The only reason I watched it is because they covered it on the podcast, How Did This Get Made?, And I actually went to the live show in Detroit to see them do a live show, you know, so it was like I really wanted to do it. And I was so devastated that they couldn't have picked a funner bad movie to do. So next up, we have Leah Thompson, who plays Lorraine Baines McFly. Seen middle-aged in the present and as a teenager in the past, Lorraine is Marty's mother and the younger version of her becomes romantically interested in Marty. So for her, I would say absolutely check out the original Red Dawn. That movie fucking kicks ass. I still love it. And she was in J. Edgar, and I've just never watched that because I've never heard anything overwhelmingly positive or negative about it. But she had some movies that you should definitely not watch, starting with Jaws 3D, which is just fucking bad, like purely terrible. And she was also in Howard the Duck, which it seems like they just poured a ton of money into making a bunch of human things into duck things. And it had the absolute worst fucking plot. It was so bad, guys. I can't stress it enough. Then we have Crispin Glover, who plays George McFly, and he's Marty's father, who is frequently teased and bullied in his present and past life. And a couple of movies that he was in that I would check out are like The Doors, which I actually need to revisit. It's been a while, so I can't give a firm recommendation on that. And he was also in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which I didn't even realize he was in that movie, honestly. But he was in this movie called Dead Man that I have had multiple people suggest to me and tell me that it, like, is one I have to see. And I I mean, it's got Johnny Depp in it. It's probably not bad. I just, I don't know. I've never heard any major sources tell me about it. One of the movies that Crispin Glover was in that you should avoid is probably Charlie's Angels. And I haven't seen Charlie's Angels since way back when it was closer to having been released, but that movie, there's no fucking way that movie is good. I just don't fucking believe that it was good. Thomas F. Wilson plays Biff Tannen, and he is the main antagonist and bully of this movie, and often makes sexual advances on Lorraine. So a couple of things to check out for him. Freaks and Geeks is a great show from like, I think it was 1999 or 2000, and it only went for one season, but it's just this really great comedy that's like super realistic. Like it just feels real and all of the interactions are real and you'll see a bunch of familiar faces before they were stars. It's fucking great. I really love Freaks and Geeks. He plays like the coach slash gym teacher on it. So he also voiced Tony Zuko in Batman the Animated Series. And Tony Zuko is actually the guy that killed Robin's parents. And so he gets like this two episode arc where he's voicing this character. And it's like, honestly, like 
I can tell looking back that it was him, but he also was like doing a voice. Like he wasn't just using his own voice to voice Tony Zuko. It was like completely different. Another thing I will say for him is uh, check out the video of the song he made about all of the questions he gets asked. Like he makes a song and he's just like talking about like how people ask him if Michael J. Fox is a nice guy or what he thinks of Eric Stoltz or whatever, you know, like it's just fucking great. So for casting notes, they originally cast Eric Stoltz in the role of Marty McFly when Michael J. Fox was unavailable while shooting his show Family Ties, and they actually shot a large portion of the movie with Stoltz playing Marty. When it didn't work out with Stoltz, they were allowed to reshoot the scenes again with Michael J. Fox. So among the young stars considered to play Marty were, starting with John Cusack, I would have honestly enjoyed this movie pretty much equally, if not more so, with John Cusack. Like, I love Michael J. Fox's portrayal, but, like, John Cusack is fucking great. And then there was C. Thomas Howell, Johnny Depp, Ralph Macchio, Charlie Sheen, John Cryer, Ben Stiller, Billy Zane, and Robert Downey Jr., among many others. For the role of Doc Brown, the actors considered were Jeff Goldblum, John Lithgow, Dudley Moore, Ron Silver, Robin Williams, John Cleese, Gene Hackman, and James Woods, among others. Tim Robbins and Billy Zane were among those considered to play Biff Tannen. And Melora Hardin, who eventually played Jan on the U.S. version of The Office, was cast as Jennifer Parker, Marty's girlfriend, and even had a two-film contract in place, but they decided that with Michael J. Fox taking over, it seemed like Hardin was unrealistically tall for her and Fox to portray love interests, so they just went in another direction. Kira Sedgwick was also considered for the role. For the plot synopsis, we have a teenager named Marty travels back in time to the 1950s where he and the younger version of his professor friend must figure out a way to return to the present without causing too many major impacts on history or having the high school aged version of Marty's mother fall in love with her son. Starting right off the bat with this movie, okay, so I feel kind of dumb. Like, I cheaped out on buying all these movies that I have. Like, I want to amass this big collection of movies to watch, but I don't get them in high def because it's cheaper, and with my eyes, I can't really tell the difference between definitions, but it's like... I ultimately still watched Toy Story and Back to the Future on streaming services, despite the fact that I own Toy Story and the Back to the Future trilogy proper, you know, like I I didn't need to use a streaming service. So, I mean, it's like I watched Toy Story on Disney Plus, and that was 4K UHD, and Back to the Future was on Peacock in 4K UHD, and it's just crazy to me because it's like, why do I give a shit? I can't even tell the difference, but whatever. So anyway, we get the opening of this movie and we see some of Doc Brown's silly gadgets and devices that all seem kind of useless. Like what practical things has he actually even been making before moving on to time travel? Marty comes into Doc's and he's going to crank it up and blast his guitar with this big fucking speaker. And It's great that it fucking blows him across the room when he strums it like one time, but it is really important to the filmmakers that we set up that Marty plays guitar in this movie. Like, they do it a couple of times where they're like, hey, this guy plays guitar, remember that. So even with the writers giving it a backstory, 
I gotta say, Marty and Doc's friendship is still very bizarre to me. It's just super fucking weird the amount of time they clearly spend together, this middle-aged man and teenage boy. This is one of those movies that my family was never really into, and I saw it for the first time as an adult, and I just loved it. But I mean, it always kind of bums me out when that happens. Like, Back to the Future could have reshaped my childhood for the better, I'll never know. Marty finds out that he's supposed to meet Doc at the mall that night, and also that he's late for school, but it seems like if Marty would have simply not stopped at Doc's to fuck around, he probably would have been fine with getting to school on time. I'm sorry, but I have like zero patience for people who are like chronically late and it's like clocks, motherfuckers. Can you read them? Marty's girlfriend Jennifer tries to help Marty avoid getting into trouble before going into the school, and all the same, Mr. Strickland hassles and basically verbally abuses Marty when he gets to the school. Marty doesn't pass an audition with his rock band because they're apparently too loud, which is typical uptight school horse shit. Then Marty fantasizes about getting a Toyota 4x4 pickup truck. And I personally set my sights a bit higher when I daydream about vehicles that I'd like to have. But I guess we all have our different tastes. So he talks to Jennifer about wanting to take her to the lake with the truck. And we find out that Marty is not telling his mother about the things he's doing with his girlfriend. Marty thinks that his mother is excessively prudish. And we we see that she basically is pretty prudish when we meet her. We get this incredibly quick moment where a lady comes and talks to them about preserving the history of their broken clock tower, and I probably would have never thought that it'd end up being relevant in this film the first time around. It's so weird to think that we used to memorize and give location-specific phone numbers once upon a time, like Jennifer has to give Marty the number to her grandmother's house because that's where she's going to be, and otherwise he wouldn't be able to reach her, and it's just like, wow, how far we've come. So it turns out that Biff Tannen, who is Marty's father George's boss, wrecked George's car when he borrowed it, and he's blaming George for it. And I gotta say, Biff's a real piece of shit in all of these fucking movies, especially when he's younger. Like, he's an awful human being. But he is really played well by Thomas F. Wilson. I really like his portrayal. So Marty is pissed because he was supposed to use the now-wrecked car to have his time away with Jennifer, and Lorraine apparently makes a big fucking cake every time her brother might get paroled instead of waiting until she's sure that he's getting paroled before she actually makes one. So she, like, just lays the cake on the table and tells them to dig in, and it's like, okay. Lorraine is sharing her thoughts on how boys and girls shouldn't be getting involved with each other and all that kind of stuff, and we hear about how how her and George met, and it's the most underwhelming story about her dad hitting George with his car, and like that's how they met. And they actually did a great job on Leah Thompson's middle aged makeup, but it looks like they did absolutely nothing at all to Crispin Glover. But it sounds like Crispin Glover was way too fucking wired up to sit for hours in a makeup chair. Marty goes to the mall to meet Doc, and we meet Doc's dog Einstein, and he seems like a very good boy. Then we see the fucking epic DeLorean unveiled backing out of a box truck, and I assume that they're probably astronomically expensive, but I think it'd be cool to have a car like the DeLorean. So Doc is going to put Einstein in the time machine car for a test run, and my god, it's like 
fucking impossible to imagine Eric Stoltz in this role over Michael J. Fox. Even after seeing all of the scenes with Stoltz, I just can't fucking believe it. The car has to get up to 88 miles an hour to initiate the time travel, and Doc's controlling the car by remote with Einstein in it. And I'll be honest, when the car disappears and the flames go under Doc and Marty, it's pretty fucking cool. So... Doc is convinced that Einstein was sent a minute into the future, and it turns out he was, and the DeLorean just reappears a minute later. Einstein's fine and still looks like a good old happy boy, but the car is super iced over. Doc's explanation of how the time machine works is pretty cool, but it's all show until he gets to the flux capacitor. Doc sets his sights on going back to 1955 for some nostalgic bullshit reason about simpler times. It's pretty clear that Doc stole the plutonium that he uses to fuel the time machine, and it's not painting the best picture of what kind of guy Doc is. Doc decides he's going to go into the future, but first, the terrorists who wanted to have Doc build them a bomb using the plutonium show up and throw a wrench into things. In a mad dash to get away from them, Marty gets in the DeLorean, which is set to 1955 still, and as he speeds away, he hits 88 miles per hour and travels back in time. It's really fucking cool when he's just all of a sudden in the same place but 30 years earlier in the mall parking lot they were in is just a field. Naturally, the people Marty first encounters think that he's an alien who has arrived in some bizarre spacecraft, but here's my thing. If I was in 1992 and I saw a car that was actually from 2022 that had just traveled back in time, I would recognize it as a car immediately at the very least. So Marty really doesn't even entertain the possibility that he's actually traveled back in time at first. And it's like, come on, bro. You literally watched Doc's dog do it. But all of a sudden now it's not believable. Marty goes into town and I love the whole 50s look of it all. It seems like it would have been a cool time to live in minus all of the racism and persecution of people that were different. I have a hot take though. I love Marty's orange vest and I want it, but I also think that vests are functionally fucking terrible and useless. Like, I need warmth on my arms. Thank you very much. So Marty happens to sit next to the young version of his dad, George, at the Soda Fountain Diner place, and fucking Biff comes to hassle George a bit about George doing his homework before running off with his cronies. So I googled the word cronies because I wanted to make sure I was using it properly, and it was just defined as a close friend or companion, but I feel like it's exclusively used to mean negative things like bad people, bad friends. This is a bad guy, and these are his cronies, they're his friends. It blew me away when I saw that. So it becomes the central focus of this movie that we try and turn George McFly into less of a pussy and get him to defend himself. And, like, where did Marty get his personality from? Like, he's much more likable and fun-loving than his parents. And other than his mom being very promiscuous when she was young, the parents have the most unappealing personalities. Like, I don't get it. They're really bland. Marty saves George, who is hiding in a tree, creeping on Lorraine, Marty's mom, from being hit by a car, so Marty gets hit instead by the car, and the driver takes Marty home to get him better, and Marty awakens to a very thirsty young Lorraine, aka his mom, who wants to fuck him, which at least he's obviously very freaked out by. 
But I'll be honest, she was only 24, but I had such a crush on Leah Thompson in this movie the first time I saw it, which would have probably put me at about the right age, like 10 years ago. So yeah, I would have been in the right age range. And she looks fucking great in this movie, honestly. So they force Marty to eat dinner with Lorraine's family, which is actually Marty's grandparents and aunts and uncles, but younger. And holy shit, I notice at the dinner table, it's Wayne from the Wonder Years. Like, holy fuck. And... They don't know about reruns because, like, Marty says that he's seen an episode of the show that they're watching, and they're like, what are you talking about, dude? This is, like, brand new. This just came out. You've never seen this before. Nobody's seen it before. But, like, could you imagine sitting next to a younger version of your mother at a dinner table with other people, and you can't get her to stop touching your fucking leg because she wants to bang you? But I feel like if you go back in time like this, by the way, and you recognize that it's the year that it is, wouldn't you kind of try and get into the groove and act like you're just another 1950s person who doesn't know what you know so as to not raise red flags? I realize this might not be as entertaining, you know, obviously that's a problem. Lorraine's dad makes some comment about how he never wants to see her raise a child that acts like Marty, which does add some great comedy. I love that moment. Marty goes to see young Doc, and I put young in quotes because this man is in no way 30 years younger looking than present day Doc for some reason. And I love the whole bit where basically Doc Brown asks Marty who's the president during his time, and he says Ronald Reagan, and Doc Brown's like, Ronald Reagan? The actor? And it's like, Wow, that's fucking, that's fucking good comedy. And that's just like, it's, this movie only can make that joke. I find it funny that the White House had to approve the references to Reagan, despite the fact that this is supposed to be a free fucking country. Reagan actually loved Doc Brown's line so much when he saw it that he made the projectionist rewind it and play it over again. Marty shows Doc the DeLorean and other things like the camcorder, and Doc is overjoyed and amazed by these futuristic contraptions and what they can do. And man, that would be cool as shit to have someone show you actual technology from 30 years in the future. By then, iPhones will have finally caught their features up to what the Androids are doing now, and they'll act like they're these sleek, never-before-seen features that they made up themselves. To be fair, I'm an iPhone user, and I would never switch to Android, but Android is way farther ahead on developing new features like that. Doc and Marty determine that in order to get the power that they need to go back to the future, they'll have to use the lightning that is supposed to hit the clock tower in one week. So, I mean, like that. Like, the first time I watched this, I'm pretty sure I had forgotten all about that earlier moment where the woman talks about this in present day, and it just seems like such a throwaway moment in truth. Doc warns Marty about interacting with anyone else in the past for fear of fucking up the future, and Marty tells him he met his parents earlier that day, and he leaves out that his mother made sexual advances toward him, which is probably a good call. They look at this fucking picture, and this whole thing is kind of shaky on the making sense thing. Marty has this picture with his brother and sister and him, and Doc points out that they're slowly disappearing. But, like, they have the top half of his brother disappear because I assume it'd be confusing for the viewer to just have him gone. 
Also, wouldn't everything for Marty be rapidly changing instantaneously? Like, with everything he alters in the past, shouldn't his clothes and everything he knows about things be continuously changing? I'd say at some point, Marty wouldn't even remember how things in the future were originally supposed to be. Like, he'd have no memory of it. I know I've seen some movie or TV show explaining that thought process away, but I can't see it any other way. So... Marty and Doc set a plan in motion to have George and Lorraine meet because Marty fucked that up when he pushed George out of the way of Lorraine's dad's car, but Marty just can't seem to stop his mother from being so fucking horny for him. Marty actually says the line, Doc, you mean to tell me that my mother has the hots for me? And basically, at this point, there is no fucking way Marty should have any doubts about the fact that that's the case, as you'd have to be a drooling fucking vegetable not to realize how Lorraine's been acting. I do love Doc's confusion with Marty's terminology of the future. Like, Marty keeps saying heavy, and it just confuses Doc. He's like, oh, that's heavy. And Doc's like, what? It's a great way to make jokes out of otherwise ordinary dialogue. Marty finds out that George writes science fiction stories and he really feels a connection with his father. And the single strand of hair that Crispin Glover always has hanging by the side of his face drives me fucking nuts and I just want to lop it off with some gardening shears. So Biff is asking Lorraine to the dance when they're in the cafeteria and when she says no, Biff gets physically aggressive with her and it's like, Biff, do you really want to basically force a girl to go to a dance with you like you could really have the hots for her and i get that but wouldn't you rather go for someone who feels the same way about you as you do about them so marty has to break up the rough interaction between biff and lorraine and he puts himself in a tough spot and presumably only makes lorraine want to bone him more mr strickland stops the fight and biff tells marty to make like a tree and get out of here which is the way i always say that phrase now that i've seen this movie Marty comes to George's while he's sleeping and pretends to be an alien named Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan and scares him into asking Lorraine out. Marty is really making the most out of no one understanding his modern pop culture references. Like, he wakes up George by putting headphones on him and blaring Van Halen quite loudly. Marty sends George into the diner the next day to ask Lorraine out and he doesn't exactly carry it out well and before it officially doesn't work out Biff comes and Biff wants to throw George out of the diner but Marty comes and slugs Biff and makes Lorraine so fucking wet for him. Biff and his boys chase Marty who flees on a makeshift skateboard and Biff uses his car to chase after him and it's at this point that I need to point out how similar Alan Silvestri's score is in this film to John Williams score in Jurassic Park, like astoundingly so. This chase is pure fucking adrenaline. I really love the chase. And with his car, Biff ends up pushing Marty on his skateboard. And it ultimately ends with Biff and his boys getting a truckload of manure dumped on them. And Lorraine could not want Marty more at this point. Like I said, Back with Doc, he's explaining to Marty the plan for conducting the lightning and using it to power the DeLorean, and it's all a bit technical, but what's important to know is that it's a great plan and nothing could possibly go even a little bit wrong with it. And Doc does a little demonstration with a scale model of the town and a model car, and it starts a small fire and doesn't exactly give Marty the warm and fuzzies. Lorraine shows up at Doc's to ask him to ask her to the dance, and... 
he breaks down and says he will, which, man, that's like a fucking dream to have that much confirmation that a girl was into you, that you just could watch the fear of rejection melt away completely. Like, it'd just be fucking amazing, but... Unfortunately, it's his mother, so it's kind of a waste. Marty rolls out a plan where Marty will take advantage of his mother at the dance in a car so that George can come and save the day. But it does seem like it'd be tough to actually take advantage of someone who it seems like literally wants nothing more than to fuck you. Doc keeps having to stop Marty from telling him about the future. Marty wants to warn him about the terrorists that come to get him at the mall the night Marty went back in time. This enchantment under the sea dance actually seems like a pretty solid little fucking soiree. I really think it seemed like it would be a good time. I don't remember ever having dances like that in middle school or high school. Marty is with Lorraine in the car, and she's drinking and smoking, all of which are things his present-day mother speaks out against. Lorraine takes off the upper portion of her dress, and Leah Thompson looks legitimately beautiful. Marty explains that he's getting cold feet as he tries to carry out taking advantage of his mother, which it's like weird, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to do that. Lorraine ultimately goes to kiss Marty and breaks down and admits that something about the whole thing seems wrong for some reason. Then with Marty expecting the execution of the plan with George to be happening right about now, is forcibly pulled out of the car by none other than class act Biff Tannen. Biff is angry over the damage to his car from the chase earlier, and this is when things get legitimately unpleasant, as if you thought the incest wasn't bad enough. Biff starts forcing himself on an unwilling Lorraine while Biff's friends hold Marty back so he can't do anything about it. And then they start wailing on Marty as Biff closes the door and continues his sexual assault on Lorraine. Suddenly George finally shows up to intervene and despite Biff telling him to go away, George stands up to Biff even after realizing he's not Marty. Obviously, Biff overpowers George and goes to break his arm, and Lorraine is unsuccessful in stopping Biff from doing anything. Eventually, George gets the upper hand and takes out Biff, and Marty looks at the photo with him and his siblings, and they're still slowly disappearing. So he knows he needs to do something more to make sure George and Lorraine get together. And in trying to help Marty, one of the members of the band for the dance injures his hand, and Marty is forced to play for him because if they don't play the songs, George and Lorraine won't dance together and subsequently won't ever fall in love. I just love the way that Marty takes over the guitar. It's fucking great. Like, they really don't believe he can play. Lorraine says to George, aren't you going to kiss me? And he literally doesn't take it as an immediate green light to go straight through Smoochtown. But eventually they do kiss after a while and the band forces Marty to play something exceptional or something really great. And he opts to play Chuck Berry's classic Johnny Be Good, which has not yet come out by this year. And the lip syncing work is total fucking garbage when he's singing it. Honestly, just, I don't like it. It looks and it sounds nothing like Michael J. Fox is actually singing, and I would have rather just had Fox fucking sing it, even if he sucks hardcore at singing. Then we, of course, get the classic call from the head of the band, Marvin Berry, who is supposedly letting his cousin Chuck Berry hear the song, and apparently Chuck Berry somehow just memorizes all of the words and music to a song that he only hears fragments of, which is fine, I guess. It's still a timeless funny bit, to be honest. And Marty does seem like he'd be the kind of kid that would know the old Chuck Berry songs, even if he's living in the 80s. It just 
it seems like his type. The crowd doesn't respond positively to Johnny Be Good, but he tells everyone that their kids are going to love it, but it's more like their younger siblings are going to love it, since that song was like a fucking hit in 1958, three years later. Could you imagine going back in time and having to go to great lengths to stop things from changing and actually undoing your existence? Like, that'd be fucking wild. So Marty has to rush to get to Doc Brown at the clock tower, and Marty has to get the car up to speed and make sure everything comes together at just the right time to get back to the future. And Marty tries to give Doc the letter warning him about the terrorists, but Doc knows it's about the future and tears it up because he's insistent that what's going to happen happens. There are a lot of things that create problems with Marty going back, and I won't go through them all. Suffice it to say that there are a lot of struggles with making Doc's foolproof plan work. Marty realizes he needs to go back 10 minutes early to warn Doc about the terrorists, and there's a lot of great suspense as the ticking clock is very well established as Marty struggles to get the car running, and Doc struggles to make sure everything's in place for it all to work. But my god, is it frustrating how much shit just has to go wrong in this moment. Eventually, it would appear that Marty makes it back to the future, and Doc is left there alone to solemnly reflect on the dangerous contraption his future self has unleashed on society. And as Marty is back in 1985, he rushes to get to the mall before the terrorists, but of course the fucking DeLorean won't start again, because why can anything be a little easy? And I do love the splicing together of the overlapping scenes in these moments. They're all very well done, in my opinion, like, where it's like, basically, you have Marty, like, you have present Marty, and then you have Marty from the future or Marty from the past and he's in a scene with the other version of Marty. It's just, they really do a good job on it. Marty thinks Doc is dead after he gets shot by the terrorists because Marty didn't get there in time, but Doc was wearing a bulletproof vest because he saved Marty's note that he tore up and taped it back together, and Doc then decides to go 30 years into the future and leave Marty high and dry almost immediately, and Marty is seemingly back to his old life at first glance, but then when he awakens, he finds that his family is very different and they're obviously a lot better off and more successful. They start off showing his siblings and I just don't feel like we saw enough of the siblings originally to have them leave a lasting impression and remember what they were like before but his mom is actually thinner and his dad is more outgoing and grabbing the mom's butt and stuff. Biff has turned into a total beta bitch made motherfucker and it's like don't you cut that guy out of your fucking life. He sexually assaulted Lorraine. I don't want him fucking waxing my car even. Marty finds that he has that shitty Toyota truck in the garage and everything is just way fucking better, but Doc comes back from the future and asks Marty and his girlfriend Jennifer to come with him to the future and says that something has to be done about Marty and Jennifer's kids. Doc drops the line about how where they're going they won't need roads and they're off, and I've got to say it's a fucking great ending for this movie, so praise for this one. It's a truly great story. It's a cool idea. I love the jokes they're able to make about the different eras and stuff, and all of the actors really seem like they went all in on their roles, and I fucking love it. So the only criticism, I mean, some of the time travel stuff, it's like it 
doesn't jive in my brain, like just rationalizing it, but what can you do? So a little bit of trivia, actually quite a bit of trivia. Universal Pictures head Sid Sheinberg did not like the title Back to the Future, insisting that nobody would see a movie with future in the title. In a memo to Robert Zemeckis, he said that the title should be changed to Spaceman from Pluto, tying in with the Marty as alien jokes in the film, and also suggested further changes like replacing the I'm Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan with the line, I am Spaceman from Pluto, and Scheinberg was persuaded to change his mind by a response memo from Steven Spielberg, which thanked him for sending a wonderful joke memo and that everyone got a kick out of it. And Scheinberg, too proud to admit that he was serious, gave in to letting the film retain its title. The script to this film was rejected 44 times by different studios before it was greenlit. Originally, instead of a DeLorean, the time machine was going to be a refrigerator. Eric Stoltz was essentially recast for viewing the story and character of Marty McFly too somberly and depressingly. He spoke about Marty having a whole different memory of the past than his family by the end and felt that it was very sad. Stoltz was also a method actor and refused to answer to the name Eric or anything other than Marty on set. Michael J. Fox was released from the show Family Ties, in which he starred, but that was on the condition that it not disrupt his shooting schedule for the show in order to make the movie. So Fox had to subject himself to many long days working on both productions. Crispin Glover was notoriously difficult to work with on set. He was very eccentric and he did not take direction very well and always wanted to do scenes in an entirely different way than they were planned. And at one point, he also kept walking around where he wasn't supposed to and the crew actually built a small planner's box around where he was supposed to stand so he wouldn't wander out of the frame. Doc Brown was originally supposed to have a chimp named Shemp, but the filmmakers felt that chimps did not typically go over well with audiences. Disney actually felt that the movie would be too raunchy for them to release under their banner, whereas many other studios didn't think it was risque enough compared with other teen movies at the time. Many of the scenes originally shot with Eric Stoltz were reused when Michael J. Fox was brought on. Although filmmakers could not say for sure which scenes were reshot or not, there are some moments where other actors' eye lines alone seem to give away that it was them looking at a much taller Eric Stoltz as opposed to the 5 foot 5 inch Michael J. Fox. The explanation of how a teenage boy became friends with a middle-aged scientist from Bob Gale explained that Marty became friends with Doc after sneaking into Doc's lab and seeing all of his cool stuff. The rights to this film and its sequels are owned by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. In a 2015 interview, Zemeckis maintained that no reboot or remake of the film would be authorized during his or Gale's lifetime. Doc's distinctive hunched-over look developed when the filmmakers realized the extreme difference in height between Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox. Fox is about 5'5", five five, while Lloyd is 6'1". To compensate for the height difference, director Robert Zemeckis used specific blocking where the two often stood far apart at different camera depths. For close-ups, Lloyd would have to hunch over to appear in frame with Fox. The same approach was used in the sequels. The DeLorean was deliberately selected for its general appearance and gullwing doors in order to make it plausible that people in 1955 would presume it to be an alien spacecraft. 
In December of 2007, this film was selected by the United States Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It took three hours in makeup to turn the 23-year-old Leah Thompson into the 47-year-old Lorraine. In April of 2020, Back to the Future screenwriter Bob Gale finally decided to explain the plot hole question about why Marty's parents didn't remember him as the kid in high school who got them together. He told The Hollywood Reporter, Bear in mind that George and Lorraine only knew Marty slash Kelvin for eight days when they were 17, and they did not even see him every one of those eight days, so many years later, they might still remember that interesting kid who got them together on their first date, but I would ask anyone to think back on their own high school days and ask themselves how well they remember a kid who might have been at their school for even a semester, or someone you went out with just one time. If you had no photo reference after 25 years, you'd probably just have a hazy recollection. So Lorraine and George might think it's funny that they once actually met someone named Calvin Klein, and even if they thought their son at age 16 or 17 had some resemblance to him, it wouldn't be a big deal. I'd bet most of us could look through our high school yearbooks and find photos of our teenaged classmates that bear some resemblance to our children. So a little bit of info and ratings to close this out. Runtime, 116 minutes. Budget, 19 million. Opening weekend, 11.2 million. Worldwide gross, 383.3 million. IMDb rating, 8.5. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 97%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 94%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I still love this one. It's funny that I didn't see it when I was younger because I didn't think I would have liked this movie as much as I do in retrospect, but I I really do fucking love it. It's fucking great. So, all right, everyone. Well, that is our show for today. As always, you know, send me your suggestions, your requests, blah, blah, blah. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.